Welcome to Lynn Cullen Live, talk radio without the static. Email your questions and comments to lynn at pghcitypaper.com. And now your host, Lynn Cullen. And welcome to uh, Lynn Cullen, Still Alive. It's February 4th, and uh, we've got a guest today, I hope. Bill, are you there? I am here. Okay, good. Yes. And you, you, me, you, I, you, can you hear me? Yep. Just okay. Fine. We're good to go. Let me give you a proper introduction. Uh, I'll do it off the dust jacket. William Ian Miller is the Thomas G. Long Professor of Law. Who the hell is Thomas G. Long? Somebody who funded the chair. I don't know who it is. <laughs> you really <clears throat> don't know who it is? You no, do, too. He was an alum who died 8,000 years ago. I don't know. Okay. So you got his his chair. Yeah, sure. Okay. Anyway, this is he's at the University of Michigan. He teaches law. He's also been a visiting professor at a number of uh, places, Yale, Harvard, University of Chicago, University of Bergen, University of Tel Aviv. Visiting professor is sort of like what, a traveling salesman? Well, yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) It's a traveling audition show. I mean, you know, they look you over, you look them over, or they just want you to come and teach what crazy thing you do because they want, you know, somebody to do Icelandic sagas and blood feuds. Yeah. So they give me a little, you know. Yeah, because you're you're an odd one. Um, And he is the author of umpteen books. Have you kept count? Uh, I count, but I keep forgetting. You know, at my age, it's hard to remember anything. I think I think this is number 12. Wow. Um, anyway, number 12 is titled Outrageous Fortune, Gloomy Reflections on Luck and Life. Anyone knowing my older brother would know that gloomy reflections are, well, his fort. Par, right. Par for the course. Yeah. Yeah. Par for the course. You know, it occurred to me that um, when people do ask, you know, what you teach, I'm always like, blah, blah, blah. I can't. And it, it it made me realize just this morning that it's not unlike our father, who, when I was a kid and filling out some form and it said father's occupation, I really didn't know what to say. I didn't know what you called what he was. I mean, when he was yeah. a furniture salesman, I could do that, but then he left that. And when and, he was and a so- real estate developer, a little kid, you know, I, I once about when my kids were little, I was asked to go in like the second grade and tell the little kids what I did. Yeah. And of course, they're bored out of their mind. They say I study old people, you know, like old dead Vikings, and they didn't know that was before the Viking craze. And they, uh, <laughs> and they, they're just like rolling their eyes. But boy, when the kid's dad, who was a fireman, came in, yeah. and the kids were all excited. And of course, you realize that the kids are right. That's right. The fireman is more important than you. Yeah, well, it's more important. It's more exciting. Well, that's Unless true. You're like that's crazily lost in these old books or old manuscripts that I have. <laughs> I mean, it's exciting for me, but but nobody else can identify with it. And here I got a job in a law school teaching old medieval stuff. I mean, I, I taught a course in property, but God knows I, my dad would just with horror say, but you, you never understood anything. My dad was in property, <laughs> made his living with property. He said, but you don't know anything about the business. You don't know anything about property. That's true. That was, of course, exactly right. Right. So, I've never been able to really explain how somebody with your strange, uh, you know, passion for odd knowledge, to most of us it seems odd, you know, would would have gotten a job at a law school, but you did. You could say, it's outrageous fortune. Bill, it's dumb luck. And that... Yeah, and that brings us to the first chapter of your um, of this book, which is about luck. And I was thinking, you know, you sort of surprised me when I was reading it because 
you say right at the beginning that, you know, luck, I'm a, I, luck can be, is not always good. And I think it isn't. I mean, that was my initial reaction because, you know, you wish people good luck. You say, wish me luck. Um, we, put good in, we put good in front. Actually, without an adjective, we supply good. We think luck means good luck. But of course, we know that there's all, uh, that, that luck goes in two directions, right? Yeah, so, but we forget that. And, and of course, and of course, we'll get to this later, but it's often a zero-sum situation so that my good luck means it's bad luck for somebody else. Why is that? Why does it always have to be a balance like that? What do you mean? That's well, hell, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers' good luck was my bad luck, and the Packers' bad luck. <laughs> well, it's just that a lot of the situations in our lives are set up that way. We we seem to like it to be set up that way. Don't think okay. that there's an ever-expanding tie of good luck. I made a joke at a graduation speech when I was saying, you know, goodbye to the graduates. I said, I'm going to wish you all good luck, but of course, you know, there ain't enough to go around. That's right. <laughs> so we have a little, we have a little kind of like fantasy that I can wish you all good luck and somehow mean it, knowing full well that one of your good lucks is going to be your the guy sitting next to you, bad luck. Wow. What do you, so how do we rank everything? Mino, remember when we were talking about? I got a little passage in this book about that everybody remembers from their childhood. The game, the horrific nightmare. Oh, Bill, it's my nightmare game too, but I'm wondering if I got that from you. And musical chairs, I've been using it about getting a COVID vaccine, right? Musical chairs, man. Yeah. Do you remember? Do you remember I hate when it. you were seven years old? What, what, you know. Total anxiety. Passed around the last remaining yeah. chair, whether you went right. slow, whether you hung on to it. And of right. course, what you didn't figure out until you were a grown-up and you were the one in charge of the music, that you rigged it, that you pulled the, the, the plug on the music when the kid you wanted to win was sitting right in front of the chair. No, come on. See, you always go oh, too far. Come on. You, don't think you, that's you mean the parent in the basement with the... It, it, it was you like, better believe they made sure the Jewish boy lost. Yeah. I'm oh, you are so ridiculous. Honest to Pete. I don't think that. And remember how you would first it starts out, there's 12 kids and, and 11 chairs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're, you're all just only mildly anxious. Of course, you can knock over some little girl and get to the chair. Oh, and then. And then, and then it gets down, you know, each time one kid gets removed and one chair gets removed, the stakes get a little higher. Oh, yeah. Get more anxious. And yeah. I wonder if they allow, in this our touchy-feely age now, if they allow musical chairs to be played at birthday parties. They now have to give every kid a present. Do you remember what torture it was going to another kid's birthday party and how bitterly jealous you were of the gifts they were getting? <laughs> Listen, um, yeah, well, but, you know, it's like fairy tales. They're horrific. I mean, so much of the way we introduce a child to uh, life, right, is from these frightening uh, fairy tales, right? And then these horrible games. Online? Yeah, did I ever send you this online uh Icelandic uh, fairy, uh, Icelandic lullabies. Oh, People, God. if you're listening, just Google Icelandic lullabies. It's and brutal, huh? They sing to their little kids. There's a face in the window going to come and get you. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> well, but it's also like when I see these little kids, um, little Christian children, because we didn't do it, you know, kneeling before their uh, next to their bed saying their prayers. And, and saying, if I should die before I wake, I well, I, I mean, I'm say, to me, if I'm really thinking, realizing what I'm saying, I ain't going to sleep a wink. Well, you know, but that, uh, those prayers were made up when there was, when infant mortality or right. youthful mortality was, so a, a, a couple has eight kids and, and three of them make it to adulthood. Right. Uh, it'd be lucky to get half of them through. 
And so death was an omnipresence. Just only in the last 120 years has that ceased to be the case. So I could never understand, never understand, and this is in the book, uh, the phenomenon of baby showers. That's counting a chicken before it's asked. A baby shower, right. Don't celebrate. That's asking the gods to zap the kid. And you don't ever do it. You know, you don't do that. And they wouldn't have done that in the old Age, agents because they knew that the gods would kill your kid if you dared presume that the kid was going to be born live or make it through the first year. Okay, now you're talking so about these. Lazy okay, about this stuff, you know. You, you're talking about these angry I, I, gods. I, what, I find, <laughs> what I find interesting, I'm sorry, I'm yelling over you. What I find interesting is that secularists, like non-religious people still kind of play this kind of anxious game with the powers that be up there. Call it luck, call it uh, fortune, call it uh, providence. And we always try and game it. So I don't know if you're a football fan, a basketball fan, you figure it like, if I watch this game, will that help the Packers? Or if I pay 1800 bucks to go buy a ticket for the playoff game, uh, and go, will that, will God punish the Packers because I wasted that kind of money when I could have given it to a charity? Or will he, if I don't spend it, will he punish the Packers? So we all think somehow that we are causally connected to events that, of course, we're not causally connected to, but we actually kind of half believe we are in some kind of creepy little primitive part of ourselves. And we try and play little games about it. Well, that's true. Yeah. I mean, th- that is true. And the other side's doing the same thing, too. <laughs> but it seems God's always listening to them. But I mean, there's a kind of narcissism, obviously, oh, about thinking. He is listening to me. He's trying to screw me. That's what you think. So you always think like, oh, boy, how do I make sure that I, the powers that be, call it God, call it the gods, call it the spirits, are not going to screw me over. How can I sneak one by him? Because we all know that God's sleep. They're, you know, they never seem to be awake when injustice is going on. So I just like, I, I like, what do you do to how to gain them, how to trick them? And uh, and you're always making bets, like little stuff. You know, so you never know what to do. If I damn it, if I have bet on the Packers to cover the spread, they maybe would have won. You know, you, we, we talk this, we think this way. Even rationalists think this way. Right. What? Will you tell, Bill, will you tell the story, um, it, 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 I, however long you want to tell it with much detail is okay with me because I was just blown away by it and hadn't heard it before. But it it speaks to what you're talking about. And this is Herodotus's story of Polycrates. Oh, yeah. I never Polycrates. I heard of Herodotus, but Polycrates I never heard of. But. Polycrates is a, a tyrant of, of a uh, city in Samos. And everything went its way. I mean, everything went its way. It was kind of like improbable in the way that Hitler's rise to power was, where for 20 years, every impossible crazy thing he did just fell his way. He began to think he was a genius. Not that the gods were just asleep and eventually they woke up. Polyquides had a friend, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And the king of Egypt said, look, the gods are going to get you. Everything just goes too well for you. And there's going to be a payback. We all know that there's a payback for good things. And so you better, I I suggest you just find the, the thing that means the most to you, that you value the most, and just throw it away. So Polyphony thinks that's a good idea. you got to kind of, because everybody believes that what goes around comes around that all your good luck's going to have to be paid for. So you go, so he finds this signet, beautiful signet ring of his that he values more than anything. He has people take him out to sea and he throws it overboard. Well, you know, you can... He figures he's in the clear then, right? He's made this sacrifice. Because he sacrificed something to even up the balance of good and bad with the, so that the gods will not even it up on their own. Yeah. So 
sure enough, a fisherman catches a fish, a big fish. He says it's too good, to, it's too wonderful a fish to take to market. So he brings it to the Lord, uh, Polycrates. And his uh, kitchen people, he says to the kitchen, we'll take it and cook it up. And so they're slicing up the fish and they find, whoa, this <laughs> ring is too overboard. They present it to him and he's just saying, oh my God, my fortune. Who could be more fortunate than that? So he writes to the Egyptian king and says, look what happened. And the Egyptian king says, I forgo my friendship with you. I don't want to have anything to do with you. You're, you're finished. Yeah, and I don't want to be anywhere near you. Just, he doesn't want to be near him to catch the fallout when the guys get even. He doesn't want to be taken down with collateral damage for guilt right. by association. And sure enough, Herodotus says he died in a way too horrible to, to even recount. But I, I, and since Herodotus does recount horrible deaths, you're left to your imagination. But then the question is, is a lifetime of everything going your way paid for by one horrific death? And I, you know, we all have this account of thinking, like, do things balance out? So Christian heaven is an invention, or maybe true if you believe that, uh, to balance out for the crap that's always happening to the, the, your average Slameel, and that if he's good, he'll, he'll get eternal rewards in heaven, and where they'll, well, they'll finally be an evening out in an afterlife. Because yeah, you have to die, and, and you'll, yeah. Yeah, right. that, but but it's but they they fudge the calculus. So anytime like the monks in the Middle Ages had some guy who was stealing their beating up their peasants and taking their cows and stuff like that, they prayed to their saint to have this guy zapped. And so the guy goes living a happy life for another twenty years and then eventually dies of some disease that takes us all out. And the monks say, "See, God took him out. The saint, saint, you know, the saint just took him out. Took him out." Glory, yeah, the accounts are even. So they just make death then uh, the ultimate payback. Whereas death sometimes, of course, if you're being tortured or something, or if you're me in old age, I now say the little kid's prayer, if I die before I, I wake, <laughs> thank you, God. Yes, right, of course. I mean, I'm past my biblical three score and ten already, which is about <clears throat> right, I think. So well, I'm, I'm going to be 75. You're an old bag. I mean, I mean you're two years younger than me, and you just turned 73. That means I'm so 75. Did you ever imagine when you were a little kid? Do you remember when we were growing up? Did we know anybody 75? No, they were all dead. <laughs> Jeez. And now, I just want... I, I, but, wait, I need an aside here for my audience. I'm, I'm often... Um, uh, apologizing for being so negative <laughs> and gloomy oh, myself. Nothing yet, audience. Yeah, Where right. And got it from. Yeah, exactly. This I want. This is Exhibit A because I was born just twenty months after him, and he had a huge impact on my life. So I blame well, you for my dark. I was the only beloved child and then she came along and was the favorite <laughs> i was not i was abandoned they put me out they oh. put me out on a nice flow you are so yeah. full of it honest to pete oh but god he had, he had a cheerful mother 98 who's hot tempered but that the temper itself is a sign of her lively love of life i mean she just everything engages her and that and our dad was morose and depressive and we more inherited this view he always thought you know i, I say in the book in the opening right that <laughs> he, he he was of such a disposition that on a beautiful summer day with those fluffy cumulus clouds going by he <laughs> saw them as ranks of, of goose stepping nazis in a nuremberg rally <laughs> Some of them related to each other. Some of them real 
two of them quite scholarly, but uh, the best ones. I mean, really interesting. One on the Last Supper. And uh, well, well, I, I do recommend to that to um, to uh, serious uh, Christians. Yeah, they are I guess serious. they are serious. A lot of the chapters are somewhat tongue in cheek. The one on the Last Supper, the one on message bearing on uh, most of yeah. the Bible in the ancient world. Right. Um, uh, in a world where killing the messenger bearing bad tidings is a reality. But then you also said that killing the messenger of good tidings was often done. Yep, because why not? Why, why though? Not? I don't get that. Because messengers messengers are always suspicious because if you send one to a court, he's also a spy. Even if he doesn't want to be a spy, he is oh. a spy because he's seeing things. And when you send them back, he will be queried on what he saw. Yeah. So, and also if he's bearing good tidings, um, he might not be telling the truth. He's probably a liar because he knows if he's bearing bad tidings, he'll get killed. So it's in his self-interest to fudge the message into one that's favorable. So you cannot trust the favorable message. I suppose that this is partly why Jesus was not accepted by the Jews, because he claimed he was bearing good news. And the prophet Jeremiah says that a prophet who tells you what you want to hear, good is things, not a prophet. Is a false prophet. Right. I wanted because to get to that. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. Right. Because a prophet's self-interest then overrides what really the message should be. Jeremiah says, if you, the only way you can tell a prophet bearing good news as a true prophet is you have to wait and see if the news comes true. If it's a bad, if it's bad news, then you can believe him. Because of course he's telling you bad news, knowing that he runs a high risk of getting whacked for telling it. Jeremiah got beaten up and put in prison. He was yeah. not constantly telling bad news. So, you know, there's a tricky thing about uh, the role the prophet's got to play. And I suspect Jesus then Proves that he was proves that he was the real thing by uh, willing his sacrifice by dying for it, you know, and and showing that he's willing to that he's willing to take what a true prophet would have coming to him. So um, I, he's playing in a, a a world in which bearing a message uh, bears all kinds of meanings that well, are outside I the text. I don't know if you want to get into um, this um, that's also in the book about um, if God, the Father, decided to, uh, you know, come down to earth, uh, you know, in, incarnate, right? Why would he have chosen a Jew? A little, a little a nebbishy Jew, yeah, right. So I mean, God could. Really uh, God to wants to be on Earth. Why would He come as this Jew as opposed to yeah, you know well, Caesar? As, in, as I say, if He comes as Alexander the Great, or if He comes as Julius Caesar, or if He comes as Socrates, um, what human being can identify with that kind of grandeur? So you come, come at low working class guy. Um, yeah. And that to God coming down to that shows that God is really humiliating himself, really making a gift to and, and to enflesh himself that way. So it, 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 that is God's grace to come down as a low status person rather than, you know, Alexander. And so but you said he also Hebrew. God spoke in Hebrew. So, uh, yeah, so he ain't coming down as a, you know, a French, God knows what, peasant. No, no. So, I mean, I, I assume that this is largely what's behind a lot of the, the absolute irrevocability and, and adamantine <laughs> permanence of anti-Semitism. That God shows these little skunky yids to, to learn that that's the language he spoke in, huh? Every yeah, well, text of God's word is a translation from the Hebrew. I wanted who to. Who knows if the translation is right? There's a lot of Hebrew words that don't quite translate into Greek or translate into Latin or translate into English. 
and you have to use close calls, you know, that kind of approximate the word. Um, battles are fought over these translations. And then, like, the, the Old Testament is pretty, uh, there's not a lot of textual problems with the Old Testament, but with the new one, geez, there's hundreds of manuscripts with very different readings. And it, depending right. on which manuscript you choose, uh, you're siding with one Protestant sect against the Catholics or the Catholics against one, another Protestant sect <laughs> or, or another heresy or whatever. I mean, it, this is all very interesting stuff. The history of religion is really fantastically interesting stuff. You, I, I just for some reason read today, um, this morning, waiting for the show to begin, that you say that in translation, I guess from the Hebrew, uh, the fear of the Lord can There's is very close to love of the Lord. You can't fear well, and love. No, yeah, it's not that the words are the same. No, but in each case, God gets called uh, in one in two passages. The fear of Isaac in one, and another, I think, the fear of Jacob, and that's what his name is: the fear of something. And um, and try and think of how actually the love or fear of a person that's all powerful above you must necessarily share big hunks of overlap. That yeah. fear would not be separable. Fear means in this case showing deference. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Because he can obliterate you he at can the kill top you. of a hat. So when you love somebody like that, it's an act of propitiation. You're trying to keep him. I'm watching my two little grandkids now, both under a year, laugh hysterically when their dad or mom do something like in front of them. And the laughter is so clearly a bit of amusement, but also a bit of terror. And that the laughter is meant to ward off the terror. So how do, you, how do you keep a guy who can zap you at the drop of a hat happy? Well, you praise him, praise him, praise him. You think he wants to be praised all the time. Praise him, praise him, praise him. Don't have any other false gods before him. You better do this, better do that. And I always think with this very good life I've had, very, very good life, I still think it's all a setup. It's a setup. That's what the book is large. Yeah. Let me ask your audience and you this question. What makes you more nervous? This won't everybody, I won't get 100% uh, 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 agreement on this. What makes you a little more have the heebie-jeebies? A run of good luck, an incredible run of good luck, or a run of bad luck? Which one makes you just a little bit more nervous? The good luck run. I course. bet it's the good luck. You bet, because you know the issue. The other it's going to stop. Yeah. With the bad luck, you either say, yeah, this is what life is. It's just life. Shit happens. Uh, you know, notice that we have a, a, a saying for that. We have saying, shit happens. You know, it's just fatalism of, yep, that's, that's what life is. <laughs> but we don't have a saying for good stuff happening that involves a body part or an excrescence. We don't we have a say, ah. Uh, Dandruff happens. You can't think of a body thing that happens that's good. Sweat really? Happens. I'm thinking. I'm thinking. Muscle tone happens. We don't have, I mean, even uh, the good things. Milk happens. Muscle tone happens. We don't have a saying for that. Hung on by a fingernail. Fingernail, yeah. Hung on, but so you're alive by a fingernail. Fingernails <laughs> don't mean you're alive. They grow after you're dead. Okay, you listen. I've got so many little things here. We're going to be. I, this is not going to be in any, you know, coherent order. Make no, already yes. has it. Um, um, I I also got this pamphlet that is a lecture you gave at um, the University of Cambridge. I guess, yeah. Mm -hmm. And the, I want to just. Reads because it, it it just you know you live in an intellectual academic world that is um you know let me just read this it, it here's how we started this lecture at Cambridge it is hardly contentious that formal curses and blessings are prayers God damn you no less one, then God 
bless you. And the former probably being the most frequent prayer offered up in English. In other words, you're saying, God damn you, is a prayer. Is a prayer. Yes. I guess it is. God bless you with. Yeah. You're invoking God to do, to send somebody to hell. It's a prayer. Well, why? How can a prayer then be considered blasphemy? I. But but it's considered blasphemy. How could a prayer be blasphemy? Well, not if the prayer is asking you to send God's enemies to hell. So if a Christian wants God to damn uh, in the Crusades Muslims, or if he asks at Easter to to damn the Jew killer the Jew Jew killers of Jesus, um, he's uh, uh, he's praying a, a pious prayer. Depends who you say it to. <laughs> okay. Um, if you read the see, Psalms, if you read the Psalms, at least a third of the Psalms are asking God to humiliate and destroy your enemies. I guess I haven't really read the Psalms. Well, they're amazing. They're powerful poems. They're really sublime brilliant literary, literary, the literary quality is amazing, but a good third of them are not what you think about, you know, sweet, sweet, kindly things. By the waters of Babylon, we sat down and wept. Yea, we wept for Zion, you know. Happy are those who smash your little ones upon the rocks. Jeez. Hey, we have a caller. Bill. Yeah. This is like Russian roulette. We have a caller. I don't know who. I don't know what. But here's a caller. Go ahead. Okay. Hi, Lynn. Hi. Hi, big brother. I got Hi. a question for you. I got a question for you, Bill. I'm talking all this religious stuff. Why do you think, what is with the Old Testament, the New Testament, the King James Bible, of this, all this, why are all these different books? And one other thing I just thought about what you were talking about, uh, people blaming the Jews for killing Jesus. I thought it was the Romans that killed them. They weren't Jews. Yeah, well, okay, here, you, that, there's so much to, uh, I'm not even a biblical scholar. I just kind of try and keep myself up to date reasonably with it. But all, uh, there's a different story to tell behind most each of the books in the Bible about where it comes from, possibly when it was written, what was the kind of uh, political kind of push behind it among the various factions. And the interesting thing is why they get collected and put together, because there's such different writings in the Old Testament especially, but the, the process of canonization, of, the, of picking which writings we're going to put in this book and make this book the word of God. And boy, did the Old Testament, whoever compiled it, did they have an eye for great, great, great stuff. Uh, the, the New Testament is more complex because it was put together while people were still very, very uh, engaged with some of the books who they insisted would, they, let's say the Gospel of Mark was just too popular to keep out, but by all the time that they put the Gospel of Mark in, it already has heretical passages in it. So it, it, it's a complicated, complicated story. But uh, when I'll tell you a little story about Easter time was always hard for Jews because you, even your friends, I, I, I basically grew up, I grew up in like Green Bay, Wisconsin, a largely Catholic town. And all my friends, there were no Jews, there were very few of us. And, and I was the only one in school beside my little sisters uh, up until fifth or sixth grade. And um, I got along fine. All my friends were Christian and I got along fine. The only time I had trouble was during Easter week. And so I, I remember it was like eight or nine, I was walking over to school and it's green face, so there's snow all over and it's melt, kind of melting. And these kids said, what'd you kill him for, Miller? Uh, and I go, ooh, I, well, you killed Jesus. I said, I didn't kill Jesus. They said, well, father said you did. So they got me down, kicked the crap out of me. And I come home crying and my face is a little mashed up. And, and I say to my mom, she says, what happened to you? I said, they said, I killed Jesus. And, uh, yeah, and she said, you tell them the Romans did it. <laughs> so I went back and told them, 
I told them the Romans did it. And I said, no, you know the Romans didn't do it. You did it. And they beat me up again. So there it was. There's the story. Well, the priest told them the Jews did it. So that's that. That's that. Yeah. Well, the, 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 depending on uh, Matthew and, and John make it look pretty much like the Jews did it. So I don't know. <laughs> I mean, but it was one of them. I mean, we have capital punishment. We Christians kill Christians on the law. He was violating the law, but they did him in. Oh, God almighty. Okay. Hey, caller, thank you. If you're Thanks, still Bill. Okay. Thanks. Bye. Speaking of, um, uh, you know, anti-Semitism, and uh, the the extraordinary resiliency of 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 it. Um, it just never goes away. Yeah. No. So it's a no. little a little a little. Well, this is what I want you to talk about. I want you to talk about the United States of America in our time and how lucky <laughs> we have been. Uh. We grew up, uh, Lynn and I grew up in the only period where it was actually not so bad to be a Jew. So when my dad grew up in Green Bay, he had a much, much harder time being Jewish and, uh, than we did. Now the use by date for the Holocaust is over. Uh, half the people, half, uh, all these tons of people say it didn't really happen, but are glad. At the same time, they're very glad that it did happen. So when uh, I saw at these rallies these shirts that said uh, Camp Auschwitz, and then the one that yeah. had that six uh, million wasn't six, enough. Six M dub. Yeah, yeah. And I, 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 I turned to my wife and I said, "Well, look on the bright side. At least they aren't Holocaust deniers." <laughs> <laughs> but they're celebrating it. <laughs> They're celebrating. Okay. So are the deniers. The deniers are celebrating up by saying, "Yeah, it didn't happen, but it really did happen, and we're just glad it did." You know, I mean, if this is just something. So the use by date is over for that. It's back to business as normal for Jews. I mean, now that we're we're up in space, starting uh, California forest forest fires. Gee whiz! I yeah. mean, the, well, so the, the stuff gets wackier and wackier each time, but it never stops. It just no. never stopped. No, but you point out, and I thought this was really interesting. You say that America was absolutely the promised land for Jews in Best at least much had. of the Nothing 20. Had. Jews have never had a more comfortable. Uh, well, you could argue, no, that they did build in Spain before, uh, you know, uh, the, every early 1400s. Every other place you look at where they had a bit of respite can't match what the United States was from uh, okay. for the last 60 years. So. But there's a reason, you say. There's a reason why Americans didn't have to treat the Jews like other countries did. Because they already had a whipping boy. Yep, the blacks. Everybody, uh, American obsession, well, deep down, even the anti-blackness is partially anti-Semitic because it's like the plot of the Jews to have blacks there to miscegenate with uh, white people. But uh, blacks basically take the heat for every immigrant group that comes in. So uh, they, they, all the other immigrant groups rise up because the blacks are there to... to enable them to rise up. So at some deep sense, America's deepest inner true self is about a half black. Look at our music. Look, look, I at, mean, the best look at our art. Every, I mean, everything. It uh, is look true. At, uh, look, at, look at what we think is cool. Yeah. Look at the music. Look at what are the badge, the, what does America mean largely culturally in the rest of the world? Two things, it means the movies from Hollywood, Jews, and it means our music, the greatest contribution, and that's black. black. Or it's this weird synergy of black and white playing off each other. So black music in other places is good, but it ain't as great, as sublime as it is in the United States because of the- well, uh, I just, 
I mean, who wouldn't, and, and the blacks, you know, it's just, they enable, they, I think, enable the Jews to have a better life. I mean, God knows. Well, you uh, say this, Bill, I'm going to let, Bill, let me just get your words, because I wrote them down. It is on the backs of black Americans that Jews could live less anxiously in America than anywhere else. Not that black Americans had anything to do with that gift to us, right? Right. I mean, they don't. They would gladly prefer that it not be there, right? Of that course. Would be their liberation. Now, in Europe, in Europe, Jews always were the role of the blacks. We were right. absolute low on the totem pole. Right. And uh, uh, and there we could never, never assimilate. Whereas in the United States, we could. Hey, I want to, okay, get off. This is so. Although that's uh, been taken away. We clearly can't. I mean, this, when a third of the people of the country yeah. actually believe, I mean, I, I expect, you know, I always ask, like, you know, if you want to, if you want to evaluate a life, I've had a good life. Suppose that the Marjorie Taylor Greene stuff, uh, like, like, just takes over, and we do have, uh, it looks, the United States, like, right now, looks very much like Germany in about 1929, 1930. Right. And so, if, if, uh, scarily, eerily, uh, comparable. So, Let's just say it ends up like it did. Another thing, just to uh, interrupt myself, uh, our neo-Nazis, our white supremacists, are actually more morally defective than uh, national socialists before the Holocaust, before 1933 and the Hitler takeover. They were thinking in terms of a nice big pogrom. You know, kill a thousand Jews. Kill a few Jews. Hell, yeah, kill right. A few Jews, yeah. They didn't yeah. know. They didn't know they what they were letting loose. But our people, our our anti-Semites know exactly where it ended up. And Wearing their Holocaust shirts and their six yeah. million. Not sure. Yeah, they, they know. So if yeah. if it's possible to be more morally defective than Germans in the 1930s, our guys have done it. Congratulations, yeah. our guys. Yeah. Because we can look back and know where this leads, and the Germans couldn't. So, so suppose I like ask this question, not in the book, right? Yeah, I ask this question. Uh, maybe I do in the book. You know, when, when you're 75, you don't remember anything. Um, <laughs> imagine a Jew, uh, well-connected in the arts world, uh, liberated from the ghetto for, you know, two generations, gets along with uh, with uh, other like-minded people, Christian and Jewish, uh, reasonably wealthy, um, a, a, a cultural figure in town, and he has a good life. Let's say his cousins decide the handwriting's on the wall, and they head out in 1931, and they say, we're getting out of here. And he says, you, oh, you weenies, you idiots, you weenies, and they get feel a bit cowardly, but they get to the United States and they live. And he ends up going up a chimney. Now, do you say that he had a good life? Or do you read back his end on that cattle car covered with piss, shit, vomit, with all the bodies thirsting for any water and there's only piss to drink? Do you think that he thinks he had a good life? Or is it all canceled out by that death of getting off of the sidecar, getting whacked with a truncheon and kicked into the crematorium? I don't know. I think he was under an illusion, wasn't he? Hello, I'm back. I think my brother's yeah, not. Well, we lost, we lost everybody right in the middle of my... Yeah. Where, where in... Uh, my horror story took it down, right? Uh, well, I'm thinking that, like, yeah, something we were saying was not allowed to be said. <laughs> we got we got so, taken off. Yeah, so QAnon took us off, right? Right. 
God. And I and for some reason my my email went down too. So I I don't know what's happening here. Um, I, I I don't know where in my tale of whether the guy who ends up going up the chimney and having a good life up until the last six years can be declared to have a good life, except his whole life is redefined by how he died. Um, it's it's a, a truly remarkable how we do define a life by how somebody dies. So a person who is actually a no good, feckless creep dies, let's say rescuing a little kid out of a fire, and all of a sudden his whole life is redefined. He's a hero. He's a hero. There's are, there are these utterly redemptive final acts. Yeah. Of course, Christianity believes in those final yes. redemptions. It's like right at the moment, your whole life being transformed. It's not like anything you do at the beginning buys you that early on, but at the end, you can somehow redefine your your memory. Uh, Bill, uh, Brooke has written and says, it seems that your book has arrived perhaps coincidentally at a time when so many of us are acting on our anxieties and negative beliefs, we are striving to understand what is driving these conspiracy believers. Yeah, I mean, I actually thought that this poor little book, um, are you there? I'm not worried we went out again. All right, I'm back. Um, Well, we got quite a bit in, but... Well, he's a fount of uh, information <laughs> and strange. And I don't know if you're hearing me. I mean, it, 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 I, God damn it. So um, maybe we just need to call it a day. Amy says I'm on, but. Yeah. Uh, um, and Bill. Yeah, Bill, if this goes down again, I'm finished. And, and I can't do a show tomorrow because I don't do a show on Fridays. Uh, okay. Yeah, this is, wouldn't you know, that this, this of, of us going down like this twice now in the midst of my most powerful and moving rhetoric is so <laughs> that the book is exactly right. The That's right. Are out to get me. They zapped me. They, 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 they right. moved with me. They've done it again. That's right. Oh, the by the way, Outrageous Fortune is the name of the book. The author, William Ian Miller, um, Cambridge Press, I don't know, Oxford. No, 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 Oxford University Press. And it's actually fairly reasonably priced for a university press book, for an Oxford University Press book. The, um, the, uh, let me tell you, there's something in it for everyone. Um, uh, there's stuff that's kind of, you know, tongue in cheek, kind of ironically entertaining. And then there's some quite serious, uh, stuff that's just interesting to know. Um, uh, yeah, you know, you won't, you won't think you wasted your time or money for, for it. But, um, I don't think so either. Hey, Bill, I wanted, I noted the other day something that drives me crazy, and I think it's right up your alley, that when people get an honor now or win an award, the first thing they always say is, I am humbled by, I am so humbled. And I always think, bull, bull. you're proud. Yeah, you got to, you, but that, of course you're proud. Uh, and there's this long section I have in about humility contests and holiness contests about when you declare that being humble is the prime virtue, then you have uh, races to see who can be most humble. And then, of course, you're proud of being winning the humility race. You can't escape pride. You even say in the book at one point, there's a holiness competition, like among the saints and stuff. Oh, yeah, sure, sure. That Any student of, of, of early Christianity uh or uh, even, or, or even uh, any history of religion, there's all kinds of holiness competitions. So saints are competing with each other. People just, just when you go to church or when you go to the synagogue, isn't there a, a silent competition going on about who's praying the most prayerfully? 
Yeah. Who's doing it right? Yeah. You look around saying Jewish ceremonies, you're always looking around. Saying, Did he really say the Amida or is he just faking it? And you're, and the people, there's the people who daven a little too intensely. There's constant competitiveness with regard to who can be the most holy or the most pious. And I mean, it's like in reading clubs, it's who can say the smartest thing about the book. In uh, sewing clubs, it's who can get the neatest embroidery. You can't escape these competitions and competitions for virtue. And they're good. It's a good thing that people compete to be who the best cook is or who the most gracious hostess is. Not bad, even though a lot of it is hypocritical. It's still the deeds are pretty good. Okay. Am I there? I want to get to, yeah, you are for a minute. Okay. I want to so get to anyway, seated. Uh, go ahead. Uh, so the humility stuff, I, you know, it's like when you get these end of career little honors, like I get asked to get these little, uh, these talks in the field, I mean, like at Cambridge or Oxford or something like that, you, you kind of don't want to, for me, it's always anxiety provoking because there's people in the audience who really know the field. I mean, they are experts. And they are there to see you think if they can catch you up, making a mistake, screwing up. And so it's highly fraught. You know, the competitiveness never goes away. Never goes away. Or the anxiety about whether you met with acceptance of these people who really know and you respect. Um, you, you know, so it's, it's, yeah, is that it's, why you think capital, wait, is that why capitalism triumphed over like communism? Because people basically are competitive and not, yeah, of, of course. and not, and even yeah. in that, even in the, 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 the Soviet regime couldn't get rid of this. You were getting medals for who was the most uh, productive in the factory line. Or yeah. who gave up most of his status, or they were giving back. It was the same game. Where Jesus is playing the same game. The first will be last, the last will be first. He just changed the order, the scoring system. But they're still in rank ordering. The humble are now first, and can look <laughs> down on the people who were once prideful. And let me tell you, I tell this story too. Heaven. How do you imagine heaven? This is always something everybody plays with. But the church fathers did, and several of them have the image of what the the pleasure. What is the pleasure of the blessed elect in heaven? They have a ringside seat, and it's set up like the Colosseum, watching the tortures of the damned in hell. So what they get to watch is basically a gladiatorial show. And knowing that there, but for the grace of God, literally, go I. But just to have an independent of being able to compare yourself with the dam is unimaginable. I mean, the joy of it is unimaginable. So it all ends up, you know, balancing out at zero. The joy and the pain, zero. If you're lucky, it's often less than zero. Lynn Cullen Live, Monday through Friday from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. and archived at pghcitypaper.com. The opinions expressed on Lynn Cullen Live are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the viewpoints of Pittsburgh City Paper or its advertisers.